Welcome to Klima, the insights and thought leadership podcast brought to you by IGS. We are a Scottish-based technology company specialising in delivering platforms that create ideal climates for plants and people. Over the course of this series, we hope to share conversations with both old friends and new from across the world who share our passion for continuous innovation and a refusal to accept conventional technical thinking. We're kicking off the series with an interview with Professor Colin Campbell, Chief Executive of the James Hutton Institute. We are lucky enough to have our demonstration facilities based at the Hutton and have worked closely with Colin and his team over the years to refine and develop our vertical farming technology solutions. Hello, Colin, and, and welcome. Hello, Kate. It's great to get the opportunity to talk to you. Normally, we would be talking to you in the fields, polytunnels, or even vertical farm based at the Hutton Institute. But obviously, the current restrictions prohibit that. Can you tell us where you are today? Well, like a lot of people, I'm working from home. And uh, so I'm sitting at a desk in my in a spare bedroom in my house in the Scottish Highlands near Aviemore, a place called Boater Garden. That sounds like a fabulous setting, even even if you are having to be in the spare bedroom. It, it, the, the outdoors must be marvellous where you are. Yeah, I'm very, very privileged to, to live here, actually. Um, and for those who don't know, the Scottish Highlands, very beautiful landscapes, and uh, I do feel lucky. Yes, no, it is, a, it is a beautiful part of the world. Colin, it would be useful if you could start us off by telling us a bit more about the James Hutton Institute and the work that you undertake there. Mm. Sure. And the James Hutton Institute is a, an independent research, research organisation in the United Kingdom. We're, we're based in Scotland. Um, we study all aspects of agriculture and the environment, and um, we're about 500 staff strong uh, in terms of scientists and um, support uh, in the Institute. Um, but we also have a postgraduate school of over 100 PhD students, and we've got several partners, including the University of Dundee Plant Sciences Division, who are co-located with us at our Invergowrie site. And increasingly, a, a number of private companies who are also co-located with us. So. When you take it all together on our, our two sites and our three research farms, um, we're about 700 strong. Um, and we do research not just in Scotland and the UK, but uh, a great deal in collaboration with Europe, um, but also in Africa, India and China um, in terms of international venues, but also many, many other parts of the world. Uh, probably over 50 different countries around the world that we collaborate with. Goodness me. So yes, you must be busy at the moment uh, from your spare bedroom in the Highlands, busy talking to people quite frequently, I would have thought at a time such as this. Yeah, it's really important to stay fully engaged at the moment, not just um, with uh, partners and customers, but also with staff. Um, it's a very difficult time for everybody, as um, I'm sure all the listeners will be aware. And um, we need to keep, keep work very human-like as best we can when we're separated and make sure we're engaging properly. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a huge deluge of information flowing from all sorts of directions, which has to be filtered and considered and then uh, recycled in, in an appropriate way for everybody. So, yeah, it's a very, very busy time. Yeah. No, well, you talked a bit about um, collaboration and some of those private organisations that you're also collaborating with. And I, I wonder if you could just tell us a bit more from your perspective about the Hutton's collaboration with IGS. Yeah, so uh, we're an independent research organisation. We get, we get most of our funding from the public sector, from the Scottish and UK governments and others. But one of the successes in our model is that we also work with the private sector. And that's really important to us because what the kind of research we do is um, 
ranges from sort of, sort of fundamental science through to applied and strategic science. And working with the private sector allows us to fully translate uh, what we learn, uh, what insights we get into practical and useful outcomes. And our vision around the Institute at the moment is around what we call an open science campus, uh, which is open to the public and open to the public and private sector to collaborate with us. A few years ago, in fact, uh, we first came up against uh, IGS Limited at a very early stage in the company's development and uh, incredibly exciting new company working on indoor vertical farming. And uh, we've got a large amount of our research has to do with crop science and plant science. And it seemed very sensible for us to try and help each other. Um, and uh, IGS Limited was probably one of the first new startup companies to come and join us on our campus. To cut a long story short, it's been a very fruitful partnership over the, uh, the last three years. Pardon the pun, but yes, very fruitful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, no, that, well, that's great, Colin. Thanks very much indeed for sharing that insight from your perspective. As I said earlier, you are um, our first interviewee for our Klima series. Um, and for this particular edition, we're going to be looking at the theme of sustainable food security and whether a global supply chain is a thing of the past in light of the current context with regards to um, COVID-19 particularly. As CEO of a globally recognised crop and plant institute based here in the UK, what would you highlight as the most serious inhibitors to sustainable food security in the short to medium term? Yeah, I mean, a lot of people will be thinking of COVID-19 has been a had a major impact and disruption on the global food supply. But in reality, we have to remember climate change is the biggest threat, both in the short, medium and long term to mm -hmm. uh, global food supply. It really is very serious and um, we have not yet managed to get on top of greenhouse gas emissions from our activities. And uh, we have a very short time in which to dramatically reduce it in order to try and minimise the impact of climate change. Uh, and I say minimise because climate change is going to have a big impact and is already having a big impact on global food supply chains. Uh, and that's going to vary around the world. Uh, it's going to affect different food commodities in different ways. The majority of regions will, will suffer adverse impacts of climate change and will have a serious impact on the way we have to try and grow food in the future. And... I mean, would you say climate change is obviously a, is, is a broader issue, but have the challenges that we face both locally, nationally and internationally, the challenge, those challenges been magnified during this COVID-19 pandemic? Without a doubt. I mean, what the COVID-19 is doing is given a bit of insight into uh, what might happen in the future in terms of other major disruptions due to climate change. Uh, I mean, COVID-19 had an, an impact on the human resource in terms of the supply chain and uh, you know, the fundamental supplies of labour and um, people to distribute food. Climate change will have a similar impact in terms of limitations on crop production and disruption caused by extreme events. But what COVID-19 has shown, actually, and, it, and it's not necessarily all bad, I would suggest, is that, that certain types of supply chain have been quite resilient. COVID-19 could, could have been a lot worse and could still be a lot worse. Uh, and our food supply systems in terms of logistics, etc., have by and large actually delivered for us. There have been a, a few problems, but they have been quite, quite resilient. But clearly what it's shown us is that they are quite vulnerable and um, vulnerable to this type of disruption. And if we get worse disruption in the future, 
it might not be as resilient as we would want it to be. And we do need to very quickly think of new ways to actually make our supply chains more resilient. Mm -hmm. And I suppose if we're looking at those ways of making the supply chains more resilient, we would be looking at improved local supply of food and, and improving supply chains sort of locally. Do you think it's realistic to expect countries to increase their local food supply capabilities as a strategic re response, both to this immediate situation we find ourselves in and also to the sort of the, the, the longer term impacts of climate change? Yeah, I think localization of production is a fairly obvious thing to try and shorten the supply chain and, and make us more resilient. It's not as simple as it maybe sounds um, for every type of food crop. You know, some of the technologies that are in indoor vertical farming systems, you know, make some of our food production independent of land and independent of weather. And that's fantastic in terms of the resilience of the supply chain. But at the moment, it's mostly suited to growing sort of short rotation crops, um, such as um, salads, herbs, uh, leafy veg, etc., and the vast majority of our staple crops are likely to continue to be grown in the field. And the reason we have a global food supply is that different crops grow better in different parts of the world. Um, and so in the different times of year, there will be different types of climate. So different crops are vulnerable in different parts of the world to different types of weather. And it's quite a complex picture. And to, to be resilient in that situation, you need to have preferably crops grown in more than just one geographical location suspect to different types of weather threat uh, and that, that's very very difficult so localization is important but actually we need to tackle the, the big issues around variability and yield from year to year because of inclement weather for example mm -hmm. and what we need more than anything is predictable food supply mm -hmm. um, we have usually tried to breed new crop varieties and manage soils to maximize yields i think in the longer term future what we need is more resilient systems and more stable yields from year to year make the livelihoods of farmers and supply chains much more predictable and uh, be more suited to a, a disrupted world that we're likely to face. Uh, that's, I mean, that's really interesting, um, Colin. And if, if we were thinking a bit more in detail about the sort of methods and approaches that might need to be considered for that improvement of localization within the supply chain are there any that you would particularly highlight that you think are more interesting or, or more viable uh, to to be considered sort of first and foremost yeah i mean i think the you know the, the sort of advent of controlled environment agriculture is uh, is a huge technological step forward you know the ability to grow food anywhere at any time of the year using you know indoor vertical farms and technology associated with it is a massive step forward and obviously we need technologies which can grow food economically and, and that's starting to happen with the kind of higher value food crops as i've already mentioned leafy salads and etc and as the technology improves and prices come down and particularly if we can get on top of the energy costs and preferably use surplus renewable energy um, there's a massive opportunity to localize production and grow food all year round independent of land so you can envisage a situation, for example, where uh, whether it's urban communities or remote rural who have surplus renewable energy, um, they can grow food uh, locally, uh, cheaply, and with greater uh, certainty around supply, greater certainty around quality and nutrition. 
and indeed uh, they, they have the option to actually customize that growth to, to suit local needs as well in terms of preferences around the quality and flavor of, of crops so that's hugely exciting permutations for how that might be um, translated to society is, is are huge and it's a bit mind-blowing in fact you think of the permutations that you when you put the power of that technology into the hands of different people what they'll come up with but for all that to happen we need to really a socialize the technology so that it's acceptable to people and b democratize the technology so that it's readily available to people but if we can do all of those things um we could see a, a real revolution in the way uh, food is grown locally in all parts of the world mm -hmm. yeah the, the concept of democratizing the technology is a really interesting one and I think sort of playing into that as well is the important role of science and its sort of position alongside or, or working absolutely hand in hand with technology. And I'm interested to know how important you think science and technology are in the advancement of, of solutions such as those you, you've just been talking about to achieve this sort of sustainable food security and, and sustainable food supply. Yeah, I mean, I'm I am a scientist, and um, I, I've got patents and inventions myself. And uh, at the institute, you know, that's what we do. We do science and technology, but we actually do a lot more than that. And uh, at the Jameson Institute, we embrace both the natural and the social sciences. And what we've realised over many years is that you can have all the best technology in the world if people don't want it. It's not going to do any good. And uh, but we do believe science and technology has got a really strong part to play but it's got to deliver what people actually want. And people have got to be trusting of it and accepting of it. And, and that's why we, we very often are keen to advance the technology and the science, but we're conscious that has to be done within a vision of what people actually want and need. So we try to encourage our social scientists and our natural scientists to work together on these kind of issues because they are complex. And we, we, all, we always remind everybody it's never entirely about the technology and never entirely about the social needs. It's about the combination of the two together. Absolutely. I mean, and in large, it's about attitudes and people's acceptance, as you said, and, and perceptions as well of um, what it can deliver. I mean, I'm interested to know whether you think as a general population where food is readily available, you, you know, in, in certainly in, in, in our country of the UK, um, you know, food tends to be readily available no matter whether it's seasonal or not. And I wonder as we as we move forward whether you think there may be a need for us to modify our attitudes as, as consumers to what we can realistically grow in our native environments and, and possibly the reinstatement of produce seasonality. Yeah, there's a, there's a huge bag of issues around this uh, in terms of availability of properly priced food. I mean, as much as the, there is an abundance of food in the world, and in fact, that that is one of our problems, it's, um, we have an abundance of food, but we, in many parts of the world, overconsume food. And uh, we do need to have a new relationship with food. It's a sad fact that there are as many obese and overweight people in the world as there are um, starving people. And uh, even in developing countries now, we're seeing a rise in food banks, and, and people who are insecure in terms of food. So this is where, again, the social sciences come in in terms of the governance and the uh, fairness around food, um, and that's got to be considered. But again, the technology, if it is accepted and can deliver on price, 
has got a huge part to play in this, and if it is democratised in terms of making food available to those who really need it most. But society has got some big choices to make about its relationship with food. We, we can't continue to overconsume. Lifestyle diseases are related to overconsumption um, of food, and uh, we're seeing that as creating particular vulnerabilities, even in relation to COVID-19. There are, there are links between those um, frailties and the uh, uh, very tragic uh, death of people. So we really fundamentally need to rethink our relationship with food um, and recognise that even as much as we are very good at producing it uh, economically and efficiently, it's not fairly distributed. So a, a huge amount to do going forward. Yeah, no, absolutely. There's a, a lot to to think about, and certainly more than we can we, we can cover today, I think. But um, but yeah, very interesting points, uh, Colin. To conclude, I'm interested to know, you know, what excites you, I, I suppose personally, but also as a, as a scientist, and and what concerns you most about the the concept or the or the need for developing sustainable food supplies across the world. I am very concerned about uh, climate change, obviously. I think, um, I mean, I've been studying it for many decades now myself in my own science, and I, I do feel like we're running out of time to make a difference, and we really do need much more urgent action on, on climate change to prevent the worst uh, outcomes. And that, that, that clearly worries me, but at the same time, I'm, I'm also very excited about the possibilities. I've never seen so many technological opportunities open to us as we're seeing just now. Um, but it's about getting organised and making sure that does meet what we need and, and having a vision of a better and more sustainable world uh, that that technology fits into rather than doing it for the sake of the technology on its own. And I think the realisation that we do need to advance the kind of natural and the social sciences uh, at the same pace is the best way to tackle these very complex problems. So uh, that, that excites me as well. And, I, and I'm very optimistic as well, I have to say, even in the 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 currency of um, COVID-19 at the moment, um, which can seem overwhelming at times, you, you can see people really reflecting on how we've done things in the past and whether that's the way we want to continue in the future. Absolutely, Colin. And that idea of reflecting on the past and the optimistic view of how we can do it better in the future seems a very good place to end. Thank you for listening to Klima, the insights and thought leadership podcast from IGS. If you would like to receive email notifications when we add new content to Klima, please go to www.igsklima.io to sign up. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do like or share. And to find out more information about IGS, go to www.intelligentgrowthsolutions.com.